Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this week we have a special show. We are calling it Nerdette Messing with Nature. We have five, count them, five different guests. They're entrepreneurs and scientists, fellow nerds who take how we think the world is and should be and then mess it up. Yes, I'm definitely messing with nature as much as anyone else is messing with nature. (laughs) We're hopefully messing with nature in a way that actually prevents it from getting messed up. And one of them said, you're trying to replace me with a computer and I don't like it one bit. The future of jobs and especially in journalism, what's going to happen to reporters. The, The worst is not trying to explain what I'm doing. It's not being subjected to all the jokes. Oh, I was just thinking about you the other day while I was pooping. <laughs> These are people doing really futuristic sounding things right this very minute. So this is a slight variation in what we normally do and that this week we're going to dive into the lives of five different people who have jobs in science and technology and are doing very interesting things in them. And our first scientist is someone who really is messing with nature. And is someone who is terrified of birds. <laughs> Because they're basically dinosaurs. I always forget that you're terrified of birds. Really terrified of birds. So I'm conflicted about our first scientist's quest. Mm. It's a slippery slope from pigeons to pterodactyls, you guys. You know, before I introduce myself, you should totally take sound bites from Jurassic Park. Put them in somewhere just to mess with me. It seems that no one can talk about de-extinction without Jurassic Park coming up. So you two um dig up dig up dinosaurs? <laughs> well try to <laughs> That was a pretty good impression. That's Ben Novak. He's a scientist and researcher who works with Revive and Restore, which is a nonprofit group within the Long Now Foundation. He's currently leading their de-extinction project with the passenger pigeon. When I introduce what I do, it will either be a knee-jerk response of, oh, that's really fascinating, that's amazing, I've always thought about that. Or we get, you know, complete opposite. The lab received this letter, it boiled down to, stop what you're doing now before your monster pigeons destroy the world. I was about 13 years old when I first learned the story of the passenger pigeon, and it captivated me a great deal. For this, we're going to have to go back in time. The year is 1860. We are no longer American. We are British Canadian. The bustling city of Toronto is the place to be. A flock of passenger pigeons flew over Toronto in the year 1860. And based on how long the flock flew over the city, it's estimated 
that there were three billion birds in that flock. Just dense, dense flocks that blackened the sky, just blotted out the sun. There are accounts of people who had never witnessed it before becoming, you know, frantic and terrified because it sounded like a thunderstorm. There's accounts of trees being completely bent to the ground with pigeons sitting on them and then springing back up into the air when they go. But in the 1860s, something happened. The railroad between Chicago and New York City finally gets finished. You could load them up onto a train and quickly get them to a major market. 38 years later, after that flock of 3 billion birds was seen in Toronto, there are only 25 known records of seeing passenger pigeons. And in 1902, the last one was shot in the wild. What we want is to use the passenger pigeon's DNA to take a living pigeon and adapt it to resume the role of the passenger pigeon. And how we do that is we're going to take the living band-tailed pigeon and we will take a very special type of cell from that bird called a primordial germ cell and we will edit in passenger pigeon DNA. And when that bird grows up, in its body, it will generate sperm or egg cells from our engineered passenger pigeon. And when a male and female breed, they'll hatch out a passenger pigeon. And, you know, that's, that's pretty much it in an, in an eggshell. So the obvious question about maybe bringing back potentially billions of tree-destroying birds that Ben will now answer for us is why, on God's green earth, why? You know, those flocks of billions of birds that darken the sky, they weren't just around in 1860. They've been around for tens of thousands of years. And when they were coming into an area, the accounts we have from the 1800s, you know, is that they come in and they just devastate this region of forest. You know, they drop a couple feet of guano and it kills all of the plants on the forest floor. They destroy the branches. And it sounds horrible when you think about it at first. But then you dig deeper and you find accounts that places where pigeons used to roost routinely when cleared were the most fertile farmland. And it creates a mosaic, and we don't have that anymore. Right now, Forestry Service goes out and they do cutting and burning to try and restore and keep these regenerating habitats going, but that's expensive, and every time you're doing a controlled burn, there's the risk of it getting out of hand. And if we had pigeons back that got up to a few million birds, maybe up to a billion birds... We could remove ourselves from forest management and let the pigeons do it for us. By 2032, if we get the chance to put some birds back in the wild at that point, it's going to be one emotionally racking day for me. And I, I hope it's a day that really just kicks off the enjoyment of getting to see these birds rediscover themselves and flourish to the point where, you know, I can be a, a 90-year-old man and, and walk along the shore of Lake Michigan and see a flock go by and have a sense of real accomplishment. I think a lot of people are out there, they want to change the world. And when we're young, we think that has to be something really big and grand. And My Little Pigeon is my little way of uh, trying to change the world. 
my little flock of a billion pigeons. How terrible. Are you okay, Trisha? I'm all right. I'm doing okay. That did sound like a lot of birds. You know, I looked up a new word today. What? Ornithophobia. Is that me? Yep. That's you. Okay, to stave off your ornithophobia, we'll continue with some more people who seem to be messing with nature. Next, it's the nature of food. The brave new world of food, which when I think about the future of food, I always end up thinking about Oryx and Crake. That's the dystopian novel by Margaret Atwood, in which we have this way of making meat called chicky knobs, which are grotesque and terrifying. But chicky knobs is kind of like animal down still. Like they've modified some kind of poultry (laughs) to not have a mouth or something like that and become this kind of like sack. Whereas what I'm focused on is, okay, forget these huge structured things. Let's start from the basic unit of life, which is the cell. That's Isha Dattar. She's CEO of New Harvest, a nonprofit biotech organization that advances cellular agriculture. Advancing cellular agriculture. Wait, so is that just like chicky knobs without the meat or something? No, she's making food from cell cultures instead of whole plants or whole animals. So you get eggs without chickens, bacon without pigs, and milk and cheese and beef without cows. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like that still doesn't make any sense. Well, Isha is going to explain. What we're doing is trying to create this emergent field of cellular agriculture where we have people applying techniques from tissue engineering and large-scale fermentation and algae growth, but to food instead. And before you ask, yes, Isha has tasted the future. I tasted cultured meat in the form of a steak chip. So it was a crunchy potato chip looking piece of meat. So it was like 80% protein or something like that. And I really like that chip because it illustrates that when you introduce a new process into food production, you also are creating new products. So to draw a parallel, before there was cheese, we could have never looked at milk and wanted something that was solid and like yellowy and stinky and melty. But we got that when we started fermenting milk and experimenting with it. Maybe there's just whole new categories of products and food experiences that we can't even fathom today. A lot of people ask, am I trying to replace all animals on Earth or something like that? I guess that's a cool idea to think that I have the capability to do something like that. But it's more about introducing diversity. I think of factory farming as the coal mining of today. It's dirty and it's dangerous, but it gets the job done. And it gets the job done fairly well, but there's a lot of problems associated with it. I think of cellular agriculture as like solar power. And what might be in this future of food production? You visit a brewery and there's huge stainless steel tanks, but instead of beer being brewed inside, it is yeast that make milk proteins. Or you visit a restaurant and they make their own in-house cut of meat because they're able to culture cells that they have from some heritage breed pig or something that lives nearby. And we're just about asking the questions. It's very possible that cultured meat is a bad idea, but we will not figure that out until we ask the appropriate questions and do the right research. And no data suggests so far that it is not a worthwhile thing to pursue. An outbreak of avian flu is sweeping across the Midwest at a frightening pace. Because there's no vaccine, both infected and healthy birds have to be killed. Last spring, there was a huge avian virus, and the only way to contain it was to cull 50 million chickens. These are some tanks we're going to set in to dump 
chickens into. What happened in the culling of those chickens was people realized that we didn't even know how to kill that many chickens quickly enough to get rid of a virus. And so they were doing things like filling farms with foam so the, the chickens would suffocate. To me, that that's not something you normally think about when you think about what goes on on a farm. And so my idea is if we're already so removed from the fact that a boneless, skinless chicken breast comes from a chicken, why not just have it not come from a chicken and have it never have bones or skin? <laughs> I get it now. I yeah. would eat a restaurant artisanal grown meat. I would eat that, I think. You know, it's interesting to me that it would still come from the cells of an animal. Like, I think that is, to me, sort of an important distinction. Because then it's not just like weird, random, crazy protein thing. It's like there is still a, a, an animal origin. <laughs> I can't stop thinking that it looks something like when you get those little dinosaurs at the museum gift shop and then you put them in water and then they turn into big dinosaurs. <laughs> well, thank you, Trisha, for clarifying that for me. <laughs> Just add water. <laughs> Still to come, we go from the nature of what goes into you to the nature of what comes out of you. We're talking about poop. <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson here with Trisha Bobita. This is a special show we are calling Nerdette, Messing with Nature, where we're hearing from suitably nerdy scientists and entrepreneurs who are changing the way we think about all sorts of different things. Next, we hear from a scientist in a noisy lab in San Francisco at a company called Ubiome. As you notice, restricted entry, lots of signs on the front door. What you're hearing is probably a lot of air conditioning. It's pretty cool in here. And this is where we receive the samples from customers. We put there in a little tube, and this is where the, we put them on the first robot, and that extracts the, the region of DNA that we're looking at. What this lab is set up to process, with its expensive, noisy machines and delicate robots, are thousands of samples of poop and other bodily fluids sent in from across the country. Jessica Richmond is the CEO of Ubiome, a biotech company she founded in 2012. It uses big data to better understand the human microbiome. The, the worst is not trying to explain what I'm doing, because people do seem to understand it has something to do with poop. It's being subjected to all the jokes and, uh, and other comments that come after that. Or, oh, I was just thinking about you the other day while I was pooping. <laughs> you know, like I want people to talk to me about literature or art or current events or you know, science in general, but what we wind up talking about is poop a lot. Basically, all of us are covered in trillions of bacteria, dozens of species of which we identify, that have coexisted with us for millions of years, and we are using DNA sequencing technology to read that DNA and better understand what those bacteria are. Being able to understand the microbiome can help us understand so much more about what's going on in 
the human body because they're living on us. They're both a, a drug in the sense that you can change your microbiome by adding different things to it, by adding food in the form of prebiotics or by adding new species in the form of probiotics, for example. And the joint impact of that, of all of those different bacteria living on and in you is, is really profound. So we had one employee who went on a ketogenic diet, basically 90% butter. Well, if you rapidly change what you're eating, does it also rapidly change your microbiome? And it really does. You can see the chart. Like you can just see like the fat digesting bacteria going up and the carbohydrate digesting bacteria going down. And it's just incredible. You can see it within a couple of days. There hasn't ever been an effort of this size to understand the human microbiome. We have a, over 50,000 data points of individuals correlating their metadata, sort of facts about you and me, your diet your gender, your age, those kinds of things with the bacterial data. And we just, you know, this is the first effort of its kind. So there's a tremendous amount of interesting insights that we're unearthing from that. So people sample their microbiome. In the case of the gut microbiome, they're swabbing their toilet paper. So in case of the oral microbiome, we swab inside your cheek. Um, we do genital samples, nose samples. Stick that, that swab. It's like a sort of fancy Q-tip. You stick into a tube. You rub it around the tube to send it back to us. Then we open the envelope. We put that tube onto a robot. We put it on the sequencer which actually reads out the individual bases of DNA. That data then goes to a server where we process, you know, what do those bases mean? And then all those results go back to the person to better understand what's in their sample. I think from our perspective, and this is sort of my personal mission in this, is that you know, we crowdsource nearly everything on the internet. We crowdsource creating a logo for your business. We crowdsource clicks of likes on photos, all these things that are not that important in the grand scheme of things. But we can also crowdsource the production of knowledge through science. We can crowdsource sample collection, the questions that we can ask through a scientific study. We can crowdsource you know, what we do with that data. And this kind of brings it to a very serious point, which is that these things are taboo in our society. A lot of people have fear about talking about their poop and they have excitement about talking about something that's taboo. And I think as we learn more about the gut microbiome, which sounds a lot more benign than poop or feces or something like that, as we think about it as a microbiome, there'll be a lot less, a lot less sort of anxiety around talking about these things and a much more kind of an openness that we can bring to it where, you know, we all do it. We all have it. Let's talk about how we can be healthier and you know what what's in it and what it can do for us the conversation will shift from oh poop gross to oh i heard about that wow i didn't realize i could learn this interesting thing from it that's such a beautiful notion the idea that you know it's all about making us more comfortable about talking about stuff that's otherwise kind of icky everybody poops trisha can i tell you my favorite phrase from that yes bacteria living on and in you it's <laughs> pretty good right <laughs> And yes, dear listener, before you ask, one of us has sent in a sample. Not only did I send in a sample of my own, but I also collected a sample from my Corgi Scout. And those samples took a little road trip down Route 66 from Chicago to California. Moving right along. <laughs> what lives in fancy free? Greta's poop is on a road trip. And Trisha, the results are in. Oh, good. <laughs> Aren't you so glad to hear that? I got to look at my information on the UBiome website, and I talked on the phone with UBiome's senior bioinformatician, Daniel Almanacid. And just to warn you, he sounds like a lovely man, but you might need to listen up because he has a delightfully thick Chilean accent. So, Daniel, I sent in my sample to UBiome, and you did your magic. You put it in the special machine. And I'm wondering if now you can help give me sort of a general understanding of the information that I'm looking at now. 
Okay, so basically you are within the average ranges that people have when they report good health. You have a 98.7 wellness match according to the UVM website. Would you report good health? I would report good health, yeah. There you are, 98.7 <laughs> wellness match. And it shows here that your probiotics are less than the average Ubiome user. Yeah. Uh, maybe you don't eat as much yogurt as I do. Your bifidobacterium <laughs> is 10 times less. So maybe you should eat some potato starch for increasing that and sleeping better. Mm -hmm. And comparing to the rest of the Ubiome users, you score at the 84th percentile of the most diverse gut sample um, so that we have like ever a, seen. That's a B. That's a solid B. Uh, maybe an A, who knows? Oh, okay. Um, so we actually also had submitted another sample. Can I give you another number and you can take a look at it? Is that okay? It is the one from your dog? <laughs> it is the one from my dog. I wasn't sure if okay. you knew she was a dog, but you probably could just okay. tell. Okay, yes. Huh? <laughs> it was an interesting exercise because uh, <laughs> in my way to the office, I was in the train and I said like, okay, I'm going to do a quick and funny exercise and I'm going to pull up. Greta sample, her dog sample, and then a sample of mine, and I'm going to compare all three of them, and I'm going to see which are most similar to which. Oh, cool. So the results are the following. <laughs> Com <laughs> comparing those three samples, the most similar are yours and mine. Okay. So I guess that makes maybe sense. Because, maybe because we're... We're both human. Uh, human, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then guess what? Who comes up next? Me and your dog or you and your dog? Oh, my gosh. Me and my dog. Correct. Yeah. Only slightly, but yes. Huh. And actually... Yeah, um, that's creepy. <laughs> yeah, that's creepy, but it's actually good because you know that the more diverse your gut is, the healthier you are. And this is particularly true for kids. And there are some articles that compare kids that have pets with kids that don't have pets. And the ones that have pets, of course, have more diverse microbiomes. Ooh, because of weird. their kissing the dogs and the dogs going out and eating poop and then coming back home and then oh sharing the microbiome. Oh my God, wait, but that's good? Yeah, that's good. Wow, okay. Daniel, thank you so much for talking with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Greta. All right, have a good one. Thanks again. Okay, dogs. Bye. See you, bye. What do you think, Trisha? Were you surprised by anything you just heard? Wow, you have a very diverse gut biome. And I now do. I know that that's a good thing. Yeah, I feel weird about washing my hands now, actually. I don't don't take this to an extreme, okay? <laughs> Diverse gut biome doesn't mean a carte blanche ability to just eat dirty carrots. And not shower ever. And not shower ever. <laughs> Fair enough. I feel like I know more than I really need to now about your biome. So let's move on to another scientific company that also uses big data. We've messed with the nature of making birds, making food, and making waste. This next scientist is interested in making babies. Somebody who is going through infertility struggles, when they log on to the internet, you know, Netflix knows what they watched last Saturday and makes great recommendations for next Saturday. Amazon knows what size shoes they wear, right? And this is all big data. This is all analytics. Why in the world would we not apply the same exact technology to something that, according to the CDC, is going to impact over 90% of the women in the United States? That's Puriah Baim. She is the founder and CEO of Cellmatics, a personalized medicine company based in New York City. Cellmatics uses genetic data and predictive analytics to help treat infertility. It's basically Moneyball for baby making. But where Moneyball was about using stats to get an unremarkable baseball team a playoff berth, Cellmatics is using big data to get parents real berths. 
infertility, it's estimated to impact about one in 10 people in the U.S. So it's a really big problem. And it doesn't get talked about a lot, right? I think that there's still a, a reluctance on the part of people who are experiencing miscarriages. And I think anybody who's taken that that negative pregnancy test after a month of well-timed intercourse where you felt like you did everything by the book, the insecurity starts at that moment. We can do better for women. And this is where big data, this is where technology can be so game-changing. Ultimately, for us, the most important thing is to be able to leverage the thing that makes somebody the most unique, which is their genetic sequence, their DNA. Right now, when a, a couple is struggling to conceive, they're often counseled that it's because of age. But what we know is that it's not just about age. There are other things that are predictive. So for example, a man's sperm parameters are important or a woman's hormone levels, etc. What big data allows us to do is to take everything into consideration, right? And to contemplate a patient in their unique circumstances in a multivariate way. I was talking to a, a, a physician group in California, and one of the physicians said, is this going to happen in my lifetime? <laughs> this all sounds so futuristic. And I said, yes, it, it is. And I remember in the early days when I started the company, I, I lectured to a group of tweed-coded academics in the UK, and, and one of them said, young lady, you're trying to replace me with a computer, and I don't like it one bit. And I think now, fast forward to 2016, these types of things are starting to feel obvious. Personalized medicine, the train has left the station, right? The price of genetic sequencing is plummeting. This is becoming standard of care in other areas. A woman can really be empowered to say, okay, so based on my medical history and my family history and how many children I've said that I want to have and when I want to get started and, and my genetic signature and, and lifestyle factors and my diet, etc., the computer can basically say, okay, something isn't right. Something isn't computing. If you want to have three children and you want to start when you're 38 and you have this genetic signature and this cluster of risk factors, that doesn't compute, right? That is a very high risk proposition for you. So if that's the life trajectory that you would like for you, then you may need to be more proactive. So you may want to make some lifestyle modifications. For example, if you're smoking, maybe you don't have a genotype that will be able to handle that. So maybe you want to quit smoking or maybe you want to take advantage of egg freezing, for example. Egg freezing is no longer experimental. But it's invasive and it's expensive. And so you only really want to take advantage of something like that if you're at risk. I get very emotional whenever we do any kind of company-wide, team-wide meetings. And uh, we had a departure party for one of the early scientists at the company who was moving on to a, a great new job. And I, I just got very emotional in saying to him and you know, looked him in the face and said, there are babies on earth today that would not be here without you. I mean, how many people go to work and think, because I went to work today, there's a baby that there wouldn't have otherwise been if I hadn't gone to work today? Oh man, we can do better for women. I loved her very much. That's incredible. My body, my big data. <laughs> when we return, our last guest, who could maybe someday possibly kind of perhaps be messing with the thing you're listening to right now. Uh-oh.
So on this special show we're calling Messing with Nature, we have met people messing with birds and your gut and fertility and food. And now they're coming for us. For me? Like you and me? Yes, you and me, the media, journalism. But is messing with journalism really messing with nature? (laughs) Are we messing with nature? Um, You know, we are innovating on a process that has largely been pretty static. But with our technology, we enable people to write in a fundamentally different way. That's Robbie Allen. He's the CEO of a company in North Carolina called Automated Insights. They've created a platform called Wordsmith, which can take big data sets and automatically summarize them into a story. Yes, big data sets, you know, like stories about finance or sports. But it's a sort of artificial intelligence that could supposedly lead to a new era of automated journalism. And one of Automated Insight's major clients is, scarily enough, the Associated Press. Robbie will now break it down for us. There's a really good chance that you've read content produced by our system, Wordsmith, and you didn't even know it was automated. And in fact, that's kind of the the point, is we're not trying to create content that sounds robotic or sounds stilted. You know, the, the goal of all of our implementations is to create content that essentially would pass the Turing test. You wouldn't know that it was produced by a machine. The future of jobs, and especially in journalism, what's going to happen to reporters, you know, even the Associated Press, which is, you know, they were an original investor in the company, and they've been this huge supporter of what we do. You know, no one there has lost a job due to this. It's just enabled them to have broader coverage than what they had before. I'm definitely not on the camp of the Elon Musk and, and others that think that we're right around the corner from, you know, robots taking over. Based on my practical experience and seeing everything that I've seen as it relates to artificial intelligence, you know, we're still a ways off from that. Now, I do think we're at an unprecedented stage of technological advancement. And early on, I I would put limits on where I thought natural language generation, that's sort of the academic term for what we do. I put limits on where I thought it would be applicable. You know, this is back in 2009 and 2010. I thought, Mostly data-driven industries like finance, real estate, sports. But then as the technology became more pervasive and more people heard about it, we're seeing all sorts of crazy things that, that are being built. And so now, you know, I'm hesitant to put any limits on what's going to happen. There's an example of automated writing from Wordsmith that's particularly close to our hearts. We had a, a couple people get together that were big Game of Thrones fans, and they were able to find a data set that described all of the battle scenes that had occurred in Game of Thrones. And they said, ah, well, this is perfect. We'll actually create a Game of Thrones battle summary. The free folks and their armies greatly outnumber the Night's Watch in size with a company of 100,000 men. But with a twist of fate, Stannis Baratheon and Jon Snow hold Castle Black, reigning supreme. The Battle of Castle Black was the first incursion by Man's Raider and the only engagement in which he faced defeat. The progress of society means that some jobs will become less valuable than others. And in fact, they can be completely automated by machinery or technology. And so I don't think what we're seeing is really much different than that. Yeah, Trisha and Greta, you know, I I hate to say it, but I do think that there is room for our technology in the podcasting world. So it's nothing that we're currently going after, but you could conceivably mimic a podcast that would be similar to theirs. Now the technology to convert text to speech has become so much better. 
there's more techniques now to mine things like all the interviews that they've ever done, right? Because all those exist in some text somewhere. Like we could get the transcript of all the interviews they've ever done. You could train a system to understand the types of questions that they ask and, and maybe the course of how they progress through an interview. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's doable. That's it. I'm leaving. This doesn't mean you can go home and take a nap, Greta. Not yet. Wow. What do you think? I thought it was a really interesting line of like, everybody stay calm. But yes, we could totally take over your lives if we wanted to. I don't know. I think one of the things that hopefully sets us apart still is that we don't sound quite as much like robots as actual robots. I like to think so. But as soon as they can make a robot sound like Ira Glass, we're done. Oh, no. All right, Greta, so what have we learned today? I think what we learned is that robots are taking over the world. So birds are taking our forest management jobs. Uh-huh. Robots are making us babies. Robots are helping us make babies, which I, it's really cool, I mean, actually. A- absolutely. But then those robots are also going to take all the journalism jobs. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a bummer. I don't know. I think, too, it's just really nice to hear about why people have decided to do some really weird stuff. You know, so often I feel like... In this day and age when we're confronted with something, we just like, nope, it's just it's impossible. That's impossible. You can't do that. And I feel like each of these people is a really great example of like, but what if we could? And they're doing it. People who are dedicating their lives to these really specific things and subjecting themselves to dinner party conversations about poop (laughs) and concerns about the impending doom of having homegrown, lab-grown chickens I don't know. There's a lot of birds in this episode. (laughs) There are a lot of birds. That's true. (laughs) This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Joe Dessau and Colin McNulty. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer, and our intern is Annie Newen. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us, because you already are. But we would love it if you took the plunge and subscribed on iTunes or followed us on NPR One. It helps spread the good word about Nerdette. The other really wonderful thing you can do for us is give us a nice rating on iTunes like Kegel Stands did. And we would also just like to commend Kegel Stands for the brilliant iTunes name of Kegel Stands. Is that an Olympic event? Oh my, I don't know. We should look into that. I think it's probably the name of something very difficult to do in the Olympics. <laughs> it probably looks easy, though. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at Nerd at Podcast. Follow us on Instagram where Greta writes teeny tiny book reviews and check us out on Facebook. We also have a newsletter, tinyletter.com slash nerdette. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago where there are delightful podcasts for nerds of all stripes. Music nerds should definitely be checking out Sound Opinions. Find out more at wbez.org slash podcasts. Special thanks to Ben Novak of Revive and Restore, Isha Dittar of New Harvest, Jessica Richman of Ubiome, Piraya Baim of Cellmatics, and Robbie Allen of Automated Insights. Ooh, it was a full house Ooh. this week. Our theme music is by Pottington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Do your homework. Do it now. That's not how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.